Let's uh, open in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, our, we recognize today our great, great blessings. In this time of thanksgiving, Father, we look back at the things that You have blessed us with and we are awestruck. Father, we live in a country that is free to worship You. We live in a prosperous nation, one in which uh, even the poorest of us are among the richest elsewhere. Father, we are not... We are not deserving of Your blessings, and yet we just say thank You. We just say thank You, Lord, for Your goodness toward us. Most especially Your goodness to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior, by whom we have eternal life. Father, our hearts go out to those who are less fortunate, who live in parts of the world where uh, governments uh, do not promote freedom, and where Christianity is persecuted, and where Christians experience tribulation. Our hearts go out to places like Bangladesh today where thousands of people have died uh, from this cyclone, this terrible, uh, terrible storm. And Father, we, uh, we ask, Lord, that You would just show us ways to demonstrate our gratefulness to You. Show us ways in which we can give, either monetarily or through our resources, our time, our gifts, so that we can benefit those less fortunate than us. For that is truly the response of grateful people. Father, today as we approach Your Word, as we continue in the Gospel of Mark, I pray that Your Spirit would be upon this study. I pray that we would learn from Your Word today, that we would grow thereby, that Your Spirit would take the Word implanted in us and, and bring it to fruition. Bring it to good works and to faithfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I could not do this week in my message preparation was come up with a witty and humorous and fun illustration. And so all I have is this picture. Take a look. Ready for it? It's coming. Three, two, one. Anybody know what kind of dog that is? That's a basset hound. There you go. Very nice. A basset hound. And the title of my message today is Receptive Ears Bear Fruit. So I want you to look at this dog today, the big, huge ears, and I want you to think in your mind throughout this entire sermon that we're talking about hearing, listening, listening intently, using our ears to hear what Jesus is saying because that's precisely what He's asking us to do in the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils as we will read today. Jesus is going to begin this section of Scripture and end this section of Scripture with a focus on listening intently to Him. And by listening, you will bear fruit. Take a look at Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. Turn in your Bibles, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Now before we read this, I do want to make mention that this passage has actually um, been spoken of on two occasions in the last three years at Coast. And so, while we're going through this again, some of this might seem a little bit familiar to you. Pastor Arch spoke on it. Uh, Dr. Bob Wilkins spoke on this previously. But I want to highlight some things in here that perhaps we haven't seen before. And also, especially focus on the aspect of hearing, hearing the teaching of Jesus, which I believe 
is the epitome of this passage. It is the main theme of the passage to listen carefully to what Jesus is saying. Take a look at Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. It says this, And again Jesus began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to Him, so that He got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And He taught them many things by parables, and said to them in His teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop, but other seed fell on good ground." and produced and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable, and he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables." So that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who, when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the Word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the Word, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the Word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Excuse me, I've got to get my water. Let's take a look at this passage in its context, verse by verse, and let's get to the root of what Jesus is saying to us this morning. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. It says, And again He began to teach by the sea, Jesus here, and a great multitude was gathered to Christ so that He got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea, and He taught them many things by parables. Now notice, the crowd here is so numerous, folks, that Jesus is forced to get into a boat, no less, on the Sea of Galilee and to go out a little bit, a little ways, perhaps 20, 30, 40 feet, out into the Sea of Galilee, so that He Himself can teach to the numerous, numerous people who have been gathered there. Mark says that He taught them many things by parables, which is to say that that there were many, many stories, many, many uh, elements of teaching that Jesus spoke on this day from the boat. And Mark here is giving us perhaps but a sampling of those stories, of those parables. 
perhaps the most important one of all, he's given to us in Mark 4, 1 to 20. The parable that we're about to read has been traditionally known in English circles as the parable of the what? Sower, right? Interestingly enough, you open up a German Bible and uniformly in a German Bible, the subheading will read Parable of the Soils, which brings up the question, what is the better title for this parable? What is the better title for this parable? I know my Bible says the parable of the sower. I read very few English Bibles who indicate the parable of the soil. But as we will soon see, uh, the German subheading, if you will, is actually a little bit more accurate. Quite a bit more accurate. Because one thing, quite a few things remain the same throughout this parable. The sower remains the same. The seed remains the same. The only thing that changes is the soil. The only thing that varies is the soil. The only thing that has a degree, uh, different degrees of effects is the soil, the four soils. And so it would be better to title this parable in Mark 4, 1-20, the parable of the four soils or parable of the soils. Now let's read the parable one more time and then go through it. Take a look at chapter 4, verses 3-9. to He says, listen, listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. And some seed fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was upon it, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered. And some seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it. And it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I've grouped these verses all together to demonstrate a point here. If you'll notice in yellow behind me, there are two commands followed by two exclamation marks, which is the reason for the exclamation mark in your English translations. The commands are listen in verse 3 and let him hear in verse 9. From the Greek word akuo, meaning to hear or to understand or to give heed to. In fact, if you read Mark 4, 1 through 34, uh, in which Jesus speaks all these parables from the sea, you're going to notice four commands. Four commands only. The first one we're reading, looking at in verse 3. Listen. The second one in verse 9, let him hear. And the third and fourth ones are in verses 23 and 24. They also have to do with listening carefully. Hearing the Word of the Lord. The entire construct of Jesus' teaching is bent around the idea of listening to what He is saying. I'm going to suggest today that having receptive ears to the teaching of Jesus is not only the key to understanding this parable, but it is also the key to having a life that bears fruit to God. Good soil is only produced in those who listen intently to the words of Christ with a desire to be transformed by Jesus' teaching. Listen. Let Him hear. It's as if Jesus is saying, open up your heart, open up your ears, open up your minds, and be ready and willing to be corrected. Be ready and willing 
to be told you're doing something wrong. Be ready and willing to change your ways if the Word so requires it. That is what governs the teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 4. Listen carefully. And now to the parable itself. We have a very, very simple parable, don't we? A farmer lays seed. He's going through his farm and he's laying seed everywhere uh, he wishes. Now, why is he laying this seed? Well, the answer is obvious. He most certainly wants to reap a harvest. Right? What's, what's, what farmer would sow seed and not wish that any of it would grow? Of course not. No, the farmer is interested in reaping a harvest. And so he spans his land, laying seed wherever he wishes, wherever he pleases. And the seed falls in four places. Behind me, you'll notice them in yellow. The first seed falls on the wayside, on the pathways of his farm, if you will, verse 4. The second seed falls on stony ground, verse 5. The third group of seeds fall among the thorns, thorns that had, had, uh, had crept up over the earth. And the fourth and final group of seeds fell on the good ground, fell on the good soil. Now, naturally, we might expect four different results to these seeds. You'll notice in verse 4, the seed that falls on the wayside or on the roadways or the pathways of the farm were devoured by birds. The seed that falls on stony ground, this seed has little room to develop, has no root, and when it springs up, the sun quickly scorches it and it withers away. The third group of seeds, the third group of seed grows up among thorns. It comes to life, but the thorns around it choke it, preventing any crop from growing. And fourth and finally, the seed cast on the good ground, the good soil, yields a crop that springs up and increases and produces some 30-fold, some 60, some 100-fold. Now, to you and I, I would suggest, and I think I'm correct in suggesting this, that this, this parable seems a little bit self-evident, doesn't it? It seems a little bit self-evident. Uh, it might seem obvious to us uh, what the purpose of the parable is, and that is to say that, that, that seed must be combined with good soil if it's going to produce anything. Right? Seed must be combined with good soil if it's going to be effective. May I suggest, however, that the disciples and those closest to Jesus, not least the crowds who were listening to the parable, did not immediately comprehend the significance of this parable. They did not immediately comprehend the significance of this parable. Why? Why wouldn't they comprehend this? As we've previously learned in the Gospel of Mark and, and throughout other messages past, the perception of a first century Jew and the perception of, a, of, of the disciples of Jesus Christ Himself was that when the Kingdom of God came, when the Kingdom of God was initiated, that that Kingdom would compel all nations, all peoples, all lands to follow the Messiah. When the Kingdom of God came, according to the, the mind of a first century Jew, when Messiah was put upon the throne and crushed Rome and crushed all pagan nations below Him, it was understood that all peoples would readily and, and, and being compelled to even to do so, submit 
to the Messiah. Submit to the King of the earth. Jesus here is giving a parable. I would suggest, and we're going to see later on, that this parable is a parable concerning the kingdom of God. It's a parable concerning the nature of that kingdom. What that kingdom of God will look like. And in this parable, a parable about the kingdom of God, Jesus is telling the disciples and these these first century Jews that when the kingdom comes, when the seed is planted, when the word goes out, there will be varying levels of response in this kingdom. There will be a degree of differentiation into how this kingdom is received by the peoples. Some will cast it aside. Some will have a muted response. Some a half-hearted response. And others will respond positively to it. And let me suggest to you that the disciples and the Jews of the first century had no understanding of such a kingdom of God. No understanding of such a kingdom of God. Examples 2 and 3 of the soil in particular, they could not conceive that a person faced with King Messiah, King of all the earth, would respond half-heartedly or only temporarily. You see, in their eyes, people would not have the luxury of receiving Messiah's message and rule for a time, only to abandon it later. They would submit because Messiah would demand their submission. And so, it's quite obvious that the disciples, those closest to Jesus, and the crowds to whom He spoke, were listening to this parable and they were saying, what are you talking about? How is it that the kingdom of God could have degrees of response? How is it that some would accept it and some would have this this almost like indifferent response to the kingdom? How could this be? What they did not realize, what the disciples and the crowds did not realize at the time, is that prior to the final kingdom, prior to the final day of the Lord, there would come a time, as as Dr. Russell says at, at Talbot School of Theology, there would come a time of international spiritual harvesting. Before that final day of the Lord, there would be a time, a period of time, which you and I are still in today, in which the nations would reap the harvest of the Word of God in which all nations would be given this glorious message of salvation, of deliverance, of reconciliation and peace with God, would be given that second chance to rectify their lives in light of Messiah's coming. And that that spiritual harvest would take place before the final day, the final kingdom of the the Lord. They did not envision this mystery period of the kingdom. This mystery period of spiritual harvesting. They expected when Messiah came, there would be no room for indifference. There would be no room for mixed response. It would either be accept Him and live or reject Him and die. Turn to verse 10. Verse 10 in your Bible, Mark chapter 4, says this, And He said to them, excuse me, And when He was alone, those around Jesus, along with the twelve, they asked Him about the parable, saying, uh, they asked Him about the parable, and He said to them, To you it has been given 
to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Let's focus on the first part initially here. It says, to you, Jesus says, to you, you closest to me and you twelve disciples, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. I think this is a little bit of an ironic statement actually, because actually, no, they were asking Jesus, what is, what, what, what is going on here? What is this parable about? And Jesus says, to you it's been given to know this. To you it has been given to understand the mystery of the kingdom of God, and yet they did not understand it at the time. So Jesus is being a little bit ironic in that He's suggesting that you will know this. Though you don't know it now, you will come to know this and you will recognize its truth and you will take that mystery and that secret and declare it to all who will listen. And what is that mystery? What is the mystery of the Kingdom of God in verse 11? It is that there will be an international spiritual time of harvesting the souls of men and women prior to the final day of the Lord. That is the mystery in in Mark 4.11. That is not always the mystery of the kingdom. There are other places in Scriptures where it speaks of a, a different kind of mystery, if you will. But it's usually quite similar to that mystery. The mystery that there will be a time of spiritual harvesting prior to the final day of the Lord. He says to the disciples, you are going to be given this information. He says to those around him, Notice, not, not just the twelve. There are some, it says in verse 10, when he was alone to those around him, along with the twelve. And we might ask the question, why them? Why did they get this knowledge? Why were they promised this knowledge? Why did God choose them to attain to this level of understanding? Now certainly the, the twelve disciples were chosen by Jesus to fulfill certain the, the, the task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, of reaping that spiritual harvest that he would be speaking of. But this mystery in verse 11 is also revealed to those around him. Those perhaps closest to him along with the twelve. Presumably these are other followers who have exhibited a special measure of devotion to Christ. Why were they made privy to the message, to the mystery of the kingdom? I suggest that a text just a short while later that we'll study next week gives a little bit of the answer. Take a look at Mark 4, 24 and 25. It says, Then He said to them, Take heed what you hear. Notice the emphasis on hearing again. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. say, how do you understand this kind of teaching from Jesus? I think it's quite simple. Jesus is saying, look for me. Seek me. Listen to my teaching. Open your ears. Be intent upon correction and humbling your hearts and seeking the truths of God and you will find it. You will find it. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, 
and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. That's not just spoken in terms of, of, a, of a salvific sense, in terms of, well, if we, if we ask God for salvation, we'll receive it. That's not really the thrust of those passages. The thrust of those passages are to ask God for more of His truth. Ask God for more of, of understanding of His ways, of His teaching, of His kingdom. And when you listen, and when you open your ears, and when you're looking to change, when you come to, to, to church on a Sunday, and you walk in the doors, and you open the words saying, what can I do better? What am I doing wrong? Where can I become more like Christ? That person who comes with that attitude will be given the answers they're looking for. That's what it means in Mark 4, 24 and 25. But to those who come with a, an attitude of arrogance, to those who approach the Word and say, well, I know everything in here. I've, I've been to Sunday school. I've been a Christian my whole life. What can I possibly learn today? To those who come with that attitude, Jesus warns them. He warns them. He says, consider carefully what you hear. With the same measure you use it, with the same measure you listen, it will be measured to you and even more so. That is to say, if you come with low expectations, with, with, without a desire for correction, and a humble heart seeking to learn the truths of God, you will not find it and you will regress in your faith. But whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And these are powerful words about Jesus, uh, coming from Jesus about the people to whom he is teaching. And to you and I, as those who listen to the word today, the reason the disciples and those closest to Jesus were given the mystery of the kingdom of God, I suggest to you, is because they were looking for it. They were seeking it. They wanted to know the truth of God and they were willing to correct their lives and to rectify their hearts in light of it. How important it is to be open to the teaching of the Word of God. Are you open to correction? Are you humble as you approach the Word? Do you look, do you read this book and think every time you read it, there's some way in here that I can grow. There's somewhere in this Word that I will change today. And I need to find it. I need to become more like Christ. Now, in direct contrast to those who were listening carefully to Jesus, were those who were outside the realm of understanding. You'll notice in yellow, the end of verse 11 reads this. It says, But to those who are outside, that is, outside this this." this uh, notion of listening carefully, if you will, all things come in parables. That is to say, riddles or, or maxims, that, things that they don't quite fully understand. So that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they turn and their sins be forgiven them. Verse 12 is a brief quotation from Isaiah 6, 9-11. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. In that text, the Lord is warning, He's telling Isaiah to warn those who are being obstinate toward God, the Jews who are being obstinate toward God, to warn them 
that judgment is coming because of their stubbornness. Judgment is coming because of their stubbornness. And so also, just like the Jews of the 8th century were being warned by Isaiah, so also in the 1st century, Jesus is warning those who are listening to Him without an ear for correction, who are listening to His words without an ear to rectify their lives. He's speaking to those who have the same kind or similar kind of stubborn and obstinate heart. And He says, I don't take stubbornness lightly. I don't take obstinacy lightly. And Jesus declares in verses 11 and 12 that to those who exhibit these kinds of qualities, they will not come to understand the truth of God and thus will not have their sins forgiven. Stubborn hearts that refuse forgiveness will not be forgiven. How similar does this sound to the teaching a couple weeks ago on the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? We said two weeks ago that the reason why the sin is not pardoned is not because it can't be pardoned. It is because the people who exhibit those kinds of qualities and who call the work of God the work of Satan, that stubbornness, that obstinate heart, that's a heart that will never seek forgiveness. That's a heart that will never turn to the living God. A heart that's not open to correction. And thus they never seek and never receive God's forgiveness. Now, um, a a two-minute rabbit trail here. To any that may find in verse 12 a deliberate and an intentional choice of God to withhold life-giving revelation from His creation, I say clearly that according to 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God is not malevolent, benevolent, excuse me. He does not delight in the fact that many of his own creation refuse to seek him. He is not in the business of concealing truth for his own sake, but revealing truth. He does not elect any to condemnation, but instead offers the free gift of life to all who would partake of it. One thing God does do in the Scriptures and in our lives today is He allows men and women to continue in the path that they have chosen. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 1. You read Romans 1. It speaks of God giving them over to the passions of their hearts. Giving them over to the desires of the flesh. He gives them over to the things that they're already seeking. God allows men and women to do what they wish to do. And in our text today, Jesus is allowing those who are presently uninterested in in correction, forgiveness, and reconciliation to remain in that state. That is how I read God's hardening of the heart of Pharaoh in the Exodus. That is how I read God's hardening at times of the nation of Israel. That is how I read God hardening anyone who opposes Him or who denies Him in the Scriptures. It is not true that God is compelling them to act in the way that they do. It is that God is permitting them to carry on in the course of action they are already taking. And any theological system that embraces the view that God purposefully withholds life-giving truth from sinful mankind, 
I would argue, does not understand the God of the Bible. He's the God of life. Not a God of death. Our God wishes all men and women to come and be saved, to be reconciled to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the revealer of truth, not the concealer of truth. And when we read verse 12 behind us, we should not read it as if to say God is malevolently removing truth from them, but rather that He is allowing them to continue in the course of action that they have already chosen. Back to verse 13. Verse 13 says this, And He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? Speaking to the disciples and those closest to Jesus. How then will you understand all the parables? Now this is an interesting statement. He says something to the effect of, hey, this parable is just about the most important one of all. If you don't get this, you won't be able to understand my other teachings on the, on the kingdom parables. This parable is of critical importance. It's as if Jesus is saying this, you must understand that prior to the final day of the Lord, the kingdom of God will be a time of harvesting the souls of men and women. The kingdom does not begin with judgment, but with salvation. And if Jesus' followers failed to grasp this truth, they would not be able to comprehend any of Jesus' other teachings on the parables of the kingdom. And now let's get to the interpretation of the parable of the soil. Take a look at verse 14 and 15. It says, The sower sows the word, And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Verse 14 says, The sower sows the word. Now Jesus would be rightly classified as one who sows the word of God. We see that throughout the Scriptures. He is a sower. He is the sower, I should say. But also it could be said that the disciples... And those who carry on the message of sowing the Word of the Kingdom could also be considered those who sow the Word of God. And so you and I might be rightly classified as also sowers of the Word of God. This is not simply restricted to Jesus. And in verse 15, Jesus likens the kind of soils upon which the Word is sown to different kinds of people who hear the Word. Those people who are like the soil by the wayside hear the Word But Satan comes immediately and takes away the Word. Who are these people? These are among those in Jesus' day and those who follow after that day who receive the Word but receive it on deaf ears. Receive it on hard hearts. Receive it with stubbornness and with obstinacy. And they do not receive the message of the Word of the Kingdom of God. Satan comes immediately to such people, those who hear the words of life and just let it fall to the ground. And Satan takes away that Word from them because of their stubbornness, because of their obstinacy. Thus, in Luke's Gospel, we see an interesting phrase at the end of uh, his rendition of the parable of the soils. Look at Luke Luke 8.12. It says this, It says, uh, those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. 
it's clear that those who receive the word of the kingdom in this manner are condemned. They reject the word and they are condemned. Now, it is very significant, folks. Very, very, very significant. That of the four kinds of soils listed in the parable, only this group behind me, only this group, according to the Gospel of Luke, find Jesus' words of condemnation. The words, lest they should believe and be saved. While the next two types of soils are hardly commendable by our Lord, neither of them receive Jesus' harsh warning like those of the first type of soil. In other words, Luke doesn't add this final statement, this final phrase to the other two examples in his Gospel. What that means is, we should be hesitant, hesitant, to adopt the very popular understanding of this parable as teaching about three types of people who are condemned and one type of person, the good soil, who is saved and goes on to fruition. We should be hesitant to adopt that traditional understanding of the parable in light of Luke 8.12 alone. Now, there's other evidence as well, but in light of that statement alone, it should cause us to pause It is one very good reason that perhaps something else is the case. I would argue, and we're going to see in just a moment, that while the first group is condemned, the middle two groups are certainly not commendable examples. Certainly not commendable examples. But neither are they guilty of condemnation according to the text, according to the simple teaching of the Word of God, of Jesus' teaching here. And of course, the final group is both given life and is commended as the kind of person we are to emulate. But let's examine why it is and why it could be that examples 2 and 3 may not be traditionally understood. We should not accept the traditional understanding of these examples. Take a look at the second example, verse 16 and 17. He says, These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. They have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now notice the, in yellow, the phrases, receive it with gladness, and also the phrase, they endure, if only for a time. I contend that it takes some significant, significant hermeneutical gymnastics to understand that these two phrases are not not referring to a believer. I don't pretend to to know how to rationalize how a non-Christian can receive the Word with gladness. I don't pretend to know how to rationalize how a non-Christian can endure at all, let alone for a little while. I say very clearly, unbelievers non-Christians, by their very nature, are not capable of enduring in a faith that they do not possess. Unbelievers, by their very nature, are not capable of enduring in a faith they do not possess. Moreover, why else would they be classified as stumbling 
at tribulation or persecution, as verse 17 suggests, if they themselves were not believers. The word stumble in verse 17 is very noteworthy, friends. Very noteworthy. We find the same verb again later on in Mark's same Gospel. Take a look at chapter 14. It says this, Peter said to Jesus, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now certainly, certainly, um, a similar use of this verb in the same Gospel, by the same author, quoting the same Gospel, if you will, is, is, is not... Is Mark suggesting here that Peter falls in the category of the second example? And if he is suggesting that in his Gospel, which he sure seems to be doing, which Peter sure seems to stumble, are we to assume then that Peter was unregenerate prior to his stumbling? Of course not. Of course not. It is high time to reject the notion that examples 2 and 3 of the parable of the four soils are examples of condemned persons. They are nothing of the sort. Nothing of the sort. Even Peter could have been classified in example 2, at least for a time. What they are examples of is immature believers. And let's not miss this point. Let's not miss this point because this is the point of example 2. That believers who have no root in themselves... Believers who have no root underneath them will only endure for a time and will eventually stumble when tribulation or persecution comes their way. Christian, believer, as Peter, as the lead apostle of Jesus Christ, stumbled significantly, denying his own Lord three times, in the day in which Christ needed him the most. Never would we suggest that Peter was unregenerate at that moment. And yet, to me, he committed perhaps one of the most grievous of sins, denying Christ three times, stumbling in that manner. And yet, and so also, you and I have the capacity to stumble if we do not continue to hear the Word of the Lord, if we do not root ourselves in this Word, if we do not continue to approach the Word with an open and a humble heart, earnestly looking for God's correction, His teaching, if we fail to do this, we will fall away when difficult times approach. And it will not be evidence that we are not saved. That's not the case. It is to say that we, in an effort to be able to handle that persecution and to be able to handle that, that tribulation, that time of trial, that we are to root ourselves in this. And if we root ourselves in this, then we will go on to maturity. Then we will be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. We will not stumble as Peter himself stumbled. Go on to verse 18. Now, these are the ones sown among thorns. Another group, the third example. These are the ones who hear the Word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the Word and it becomes unfruitful. Highlighted unfruitful there. Here again, uh, hardly the term I would have used 
if I were warning people of hellfire. Hardly the term Jesus would have used if He was telling the third group of people that they are going to be eternally condemned. Surely He would have used much stronger language here. But Jesus here is speaking of a believer, which makes a whole lot more sense. He's speaking of someone who's simply being unfruitful. They become blinded by the world of riches, of luxury. They believe, they sprout up, and as they sprout up, they're choked by thorns. They're choked by the cares of this world. And the luxury and the pleasure and the lust of this world choke the faith that they have, the little faith that they have, and suffocate it. And they become unfruitful. They're not able to bear crop. Christian, what are your priorities? Are we focused on the Word of God and consistently hearing it? Or are we fooled by the riches of this world? Do we lust after material possessions? After luxury? After pleasure? You know, I think we live in a society that, that believes, earnestly believes that the chief end of life is to find pleasure. To do something fun. And too often Christians get sucked into this mindset. They want to feel good. They want to do something fun. You know, I'm reminded, I've even heard it justified based on the Declaration of Independence. I want to bring up the Declaration of Independence just briefly. Um, David Bennett will appreciate this. Good historian. Says very clearly, we know this very well. Says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. These are self-evident truths. Things that, it's kind of like, duh. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed, gifted, if you will, by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. That is to say that all people have these rights. They can't be transferred to them by another man. They are innately given to all people, these inalienable rights. And among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That final phrase, those of you who... um, know the history of that phrase. Know today that that phrase is grossly misused in culture and society today. People point to that phrase and say, see, even the framers of the Constitution, the framers of our nation, those who signed the Declaration of Independence, these were men who understood that pleasure and fun are precisely things that we are to have as innate rights. Gee, that doesn't sound correct, does it? Doesn't it sound kind of odd that the three chief things that our forefathers thought that God gave them was life, freedom, and the pursuit of fun? Of course not. Of course not. No, that phrase, the pursuit of happiness, is not equivalent with the pursuit of pleasure. It is not equivalent with the pursuit of fun. Of, of, being, of being entertained. That's not what they meant by it. The phrase, the pursuit of happiness, has to do with the end result of a virtuous life. The pursuit of happiness to the, to, in the minds of the framers of our nation was a pursuit of morality, a pursuit of virtue, a pursuit of character, knowing that those things are what lead someone to be truly happy, to be truly satisfied, to be truly content in their lives. So in our language today, this, this phrase might be better said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of virtue or the pursuit of morality, or the pursuit of, dare I say, godliness. 
Because that's what the framers intended by this statement. Christian, do you suppose that you will find happiness because of the next purchase you make? Or the next vacation you take? Or the next job you find? Or the next home you buy? Ah, this, that is foolishness. The foolishness of the world. And that's what verses 18 and 19 attest to. Christian, don't be choked by the thorns of this world. You will become unfruitful. You will not bear fruit to God. You will be suffocated in your faith. You will become useless to the Lord. Verse 20. Finishing up. But these are the ones sown on the good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Here we find the group that Jesus commends. They hear the word with open ears. They regularly put themselves under the teaching of God's word. They habitually open the word and they look into it and they seek correction and training and righteousness. They accept the word and they bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. Uh, some commentators suggest here that this is the parable of the six soils, actually, rather than, than the four soils. Because there are some seed that go on to 30-fold, some to 60, and some to 100. So it's not to suggest that only a minority will go on to fruition. But quite frankly, perhaps a good portion will go on to fruition. Those who put themselves in the Word. The resulting fruit is not always the same for these mature believers. But the harvest in their lives is quite evident. And why are they different? Why are they different than the rest? What is the difference in their response, in their fruitfulness? Why is it that these Christians go on to productivity while so many other believers go on to an indifferent response to God in their lives? I think this quote sums it up by our chief France. He says, The intention of the sower is to produce a crop. But whether or not this crop is achieved depends on the condition of the soil into which the seed falls. The same seed produced contrasting results. The result then is appropriate to the condition of the hearer. And that is why how you hear is so central a theme of this chapter. The focus throughout is not on the aim of the teacher so much as on the receptivity of the hearers. This is really well said. Really well said. You know, I... The, we, we, we often miss the point on obedience. People assume that to be obedient, you must follow the law, uh, follow, follow God's laws, and focus on what's right and what's wrong, and make sure you do what's right and avoid what's wrong. That is not, that is not how you go on to obedience and to fruition in the Christian life. It is not law-abiding. It is listening to this. It is opening your ears and your eyes and your hearts to this. And the Word of God is what changes us. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to change us. And so the more you're in this, the more likely you are to be an obedient Christian, to be a fruitful Christian, to be one who goes on to maturity and fruition. If you wonder, why is it that I struggle in my Christian life? Why is it that I deal with sin? Why is it that I don't see the, the, the signs of a healthy, mature believer? 
I submit to you every time it has to do with how much you're in this. And not just how much time you're in this, but the manner in which you're in this. Are you in this as a study book? Looking to find facts? Or are you in this as a life-transforming Word from God? One that reshapes your soul every time you open it. Obedience and fruitfulness is contingent on how much you are listening to the Word of God and the manner in which you are listening to it. Application. Two things I want to say from a theological perspective and two things from a personal application perspective. First, the mystery of the Kingdom of God in terms of theology, what to know. In Mark 4.11 is that a time of great spiritual harvesting will precede the eschatological day of the Lord. The final day of the Lord will be preceded by the time that you and I are in right now. Spiritual harvesting. And that was a mystery to many, many people, not least the disciples. Number two, examples two, the stony ground, and three, the thorns of the four types of soil are better understood as characteristic of immature believers who fail to persevere in times of trouble or temptation. That is not to say that their failure to persevere leads them to condemnation. That's not what the Scriptures teach. But it is to say that these people are immature. And the reason they're immature is because they're not heeding this. What about personal application? What can we personally apply to our lives here today from the parable of the soils? One, open your ears and your hearts to God's Word and seek correction, maturity, and training. God abundantly blesses a humble heart. Remember, for whoever has, to him more will be given. What a tremendous, tremendous teaching that is from Christ. Number two, when evangelizing or discipling others, do not become discouraged when you do not see immediate or lasting results. In spiritual harvesting, the sower is not responsible for the growth of the seed. I cannot emphasize that enough. I think too often uh, people assume that they're doing something wrong in their evangelism because people aren't coming to faith in Christ. Or I cannot tell you how many times I feel that I'm doing something wrong in the life of a believer at Coast if I'm counseling them or discipling them and I'm not seeing results. Sometimes I get discouraged about that. I know others of you who are discipling others or training others in Awan or wherever it may be, you might become discouraged. Hey, it's not the sower who is responsible for the growth of that seed. We plant and we water, but God gives the growth. And it is our job to be faithful to plant these seeds, to water these seeds, and allow God's Spirit to work results in the life of the unbeliever and also the believer. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this time in Your Word. I thank You, Lord, just for how precious Your Word is. When we listen to it with open ears and humble hearts, we grow and we mature. And we lose pride. And we lose arrogance. We set aside the riches of this world. We set aside... The, the desire to be free of persecution or tribulation, and instead we say, whatever it takes, I'll be faithful to Your Word and I'll go on to bear fruit. Father, I pray that You would help us at Coast Bible Church every time we open Your Word, be it on a Sunday or during the week with our families or by ourselves, that we would open it 
seeking correction. Listen, you ask us. Listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear this word. And we know, Father, that if we're seeking you, that we will find you. We thank you for that precious truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.